new series called The, De- the Seven Deadly Sins. And that might sound a little bit um, uh, familiar because it's actually an ancient construct that the church has used all the way since back to the 4th century, uh, by a, started by a Greek monastic theologian named Evagrius of Pontius. And basically, in his own struggle with trying to have some semblance of control over his life and some semblance of control over sin, he identified eight root sins that he said, these are the core sins that produce others. Then in the 7th century, Pope Gregory the Great reduced the list from eight to seven, and so here's uh, the list, these uh, sins, sloth, anger, pride, greed, lust, envy, and gluttony. That last one, gluttony. Mm, Okay. Uh, Now, since then, the church has used this list as a a way not to try to necessarily condemn people or, or things like that, but it's just a way to help us all identify in our struggle over sin. Because when you look out at at the world, the, the, the reason why there's so much hatred, the reason why there are wars, or the reason why uh, there's murder, the reason why there's prejudice, the reason why things don't go right and work right, the, things, the reason why your coffee machine breaks down, the reason why you're having an argument with your spouse is because of sin. It's pervasive. It's all over. Sin is why the world is so broken. It's the reason for all the brokenness. And so if you've ever struggled just personally with sin, with the demons inside of your own soul, this message series is for you. So to start us off, I'm not going to kind of dive into one of these. And that's what, that's what we do each, each week, be about seven, eight-week series. But today I just want to talk about sin a little bit more in general terms to give us some kind of baseline standing. And what does God do with our sin? How does he see us when we're like in our worst moments? Uh, I want to take a look at that. So if you're at John chapter 8, and let me um, define the word sin first, because sometimes it it feels a little weird, sounds a little archaic. All right. Sin is anything that does not align with the character, virtues, and the will of God. That's what sin is. Sin is anything that does not align with the character, virtues, and the will of God. Now, if you grew up in the church, okay, I didn't grow up in the church, but if you did grow up in the church, um, sin was likely couched in terms of morality, okay? Like people might say, like, it was a, it's a sin to cuss, or it's a sin to lie, or it's a sin to commit adultery, or it's a sin to steal, or from my Southern Baptist background, it was almost considered a sin to drink alcohol, okay? So, now, there's a helpful aspect of seeing sin in terms of, of strict morality, left or right, up or down, right or wrong. Because one positive thing about that is there's a practical clarity. Like, you either lied or you didn't lie. Either you committed adultery or you stayed pure. Everything is black and white. That's the upside. Now, the downside of just a strict morality lens of sin is what if you're really good? Like, what if you try really hard to be a really good person? And so you never commit adultery. Wow, that's amazing. You never steal. You never cuss. You never lied. You sipped alcohol, but you didn't swallow it. I mean, you could just do all these weird things to just build up a false sense of of your own righteousness. And you feel like, well, you know, I sin occasionally, but I'm not as sinful as others. And I really try to, to love Jesus and be holy. And the evidence of that is there's really not a lot of sin in my life. I don't sin that 
often. And so what I see is that sin is much worse than any of us ever thought. We, we are much more depraved than we could ever imagine. We are much more steeped in this, this thing that degrades us, that defiles us, that, that continues this brokenness process more than we could ever imagine. Because here's the deal. If the Bible is true and it says that we're lost without God, or if the Bible is true and says that all of us are, that there's no one righteous, no one deserving of heaven, that we are all just condemned, we all deserve separation from God. And Jesus, if he had to do something about it, if he had to die for us, then our sin must not only be really depraved, we must be steeped in it. We must be in a really, really, really bad spot. And we can't get it off. Have you ever had something on you that's really difficult to get off? There's some things that are on you that are good. Some things are not so good. Some good things are, you ever been to the Korean barbecue? Right? The smell. And after you get out, you walk out and you go into the car, it still smells good, right? Like, don't you love that smell? I love that smell, right? That's a good smell. But there's some stuff that's on you like you don't want. It's like, how do you get it off? I don't know. Have you ever been like sprinkled with glitter? You know, how do you get that off, right? You ever get like a permanent, work with a permanent marker and you get a permanent marker on your hand or your arm or face or something like that? You're like, when is this ever going to come off? And, and that's kind of like how sin is. You feel like it's just not going to come off. Because when you study the scriptures and when you just live your life, you find that sin sticks to you because, because it's not just a moral choice. It's not like this one decision that I make. Am I going to sin or not? Sin permeates. It disrupts the human soul. You can't get it off you. And the reason why it's so pervasive in us and in the world is because it's not just these one-time moral decisions that we make. It's also relational, and it's also attitudinal. It's what's in our hearts. See, when we fail to love like Jesus would love, it, that's not even, just don't bring morality to that. Like, we're just not loving at the same kind we're not loving at the same level. We're not even in the, pointing the same direction of, of a person that Jesus loves. When we even fail to love like Jesus loved, we're missing the mark. It's sin. When we act unjustly, when we act unfairly, because and Jesus would act justly or fairly in the situation, that's sin. We're not even talking about morality right now. When we blame others and refuse to take responsibility, that's sin. When we condemn and hate others rather than forgive, like we just not being forgiving. Right? That's actually sin. When you understand sin as both moral and also relational and attitudinal, then you realize how bad it is and that there's no room for self-righteousness. And so this morning, what I want us to do is take a look at John chapter 8, a passage that really perfectly demonstrates this both mor morality and relational sin. And most importantly, most importantly, I want us to walk away knowing how God deals with all of our sin, whatever it might be. All right, verse 1, it says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, the apostle uh, John is, is, the book of John is known for very descriptive language, very precise details. 
And you want to pay attention to the details. And this particular passage is filled with a lot of irony and a lot of sarcasm. So you want to pay attention to those things. So what are the details that he gives is that Jesus came early in the morning? Raise your hand if you're a night owl. Okay, night owls, a lot of night owls here. All right, let's see. All right, um, raise your hand if you're a morning person. Morning person. All right, okay, good. Now, what makes, I'm a morning person too, all right? Now, what makes morning people so awesome, all right, is we're, we're intentional, right? When you wake up early in the morning, it's because you have something to do, you got somewhere to go, you got people to meet with, you have a mission to accomplish. If you are a not a morning person, you aren't even Christian until it's 10 o'clock, right? You even, not until you had your first cup of coffee, you're not even a Christian yet. Now, see, Jesus, okay, he got up early in the morning because he was intent on meeting people, teaching people, loving people, but there were another group of people who got up that early, another group of teachers, and they came for a very different reason. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders. These are like pastors. Maybe, you know, that, that's the equivalent today. They brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, okay, this, these are important details they are in the temple, which we talked about last week. This, this place where the Holy of Holies, where God is supposed to meet his people. A place that's kind of holy unto the Lord. The, places where, the place where people's sins, the whole nation is, is forgiven, at least once a year. Where people make peace with God. And they bring this woman caught in the very act of adultery, having brought her in the center of the court. And they said to him, teacher. And you got to understand, that's a very sarcastic way they said to Jesus, because they don't really think he's their teacher. They are the teachers. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. And then they add this small little detail, in the very act. Because Jesus, you know, we want to make sure that not only do you have a label that we've placed on this woman, we want to also provide you a visual. She was caught in the very act of adultery. See, the Pharisees, what I uh, call, uh, call the seriously religious. Do you know who people who are like seriously religious? They're serious about their religion. The Pharisees, they got up early because they were intent. They had a mission. They had this pre-planned Maybe they knew this woman was a woman who slept around. Maybe this woman had a particular reputation. And so they pre-planned all of this. And so maybe they had her followed. Maybe they knew uh, who she was going to weed her. Or they were gonna, kind of waiting for her to, and, and following her. And then they would follow her to wherever she was going to meet her lover. And when they got into bed, and just at the right moment, they just came out, right? And say, gotcha, right? You're caught in an affair. And they hauled this woman off, waiting for Jesus to show up in the temple. They got up early for this. I want you to think about that. They got up early to do this. This was all premeditated because what did they want to do? They wanted to use this woman as a test because they wanted to make Jesus look bad. And here's the irony is that in exposing this woman's 
moral sin and pointing the finger at this woman's moral sin, it exposed the relational sin in the pastors. It exposed the relational sin in the religious leaders. That's one of the things that's really troubling about church today. It's one of the things that's really troubling about maybe a lot of evangelical particular circles is that as we point, we do not have the self-awareness to know that as we point, we point with a finger of hatred and judgment. And while we point the finger of sin at others, we do not see the relational sin that is driving us. It's scary. And so they say to Jesus, verse 5, now in the law, because they're the teachers, and just in case, Jesus, you don't know, right? In the law, he's referring to their law, the Old Testament law of Moses, right? Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were saying this, again, they were testing him so that they might have grounds of accusing him. Now, what were they doing? Okay, what's this whole testing? What's this trap they're trying to spring for Jesus? It's this. Jesus, because he's God, okay, Jesus was known to begin to test, to begin to change, to begin to alter, begin to move some of their Old Testament laws. For example, they really didn't like it that he did work on the Sabbath. Okay, Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. And they have tons and tons of law of what you can and cannot do on a Sabbath day. All right? And Jesus was just known as a person who he would heal people on the Sabbath. He would travel to places on the Sabbath. He would just do things that you, you weren't supposed to do. Now, most of the time when Jesus did these things, the majority of his ministry was out in Galilee. It's kind of like the boon, Galilee, kind of like the boondocks, right? Out in, I don't know, Walla Walla or Spokane, something like that, okay? You know, out where not a lot of people were. And so they would see, the Pharisees would see these things and be like, look at him. He's disobeying the law. He's sinning. He's changing things. And so now that he's in temple, he's in Jerusalem, the center where there's a lot of people. And what they're trying to do is trying to see what will Jesus do? Because Jesus, he's known for being so compassionate, like so nice, right? And so gentle and so forgiving. He forgives people of sins. They're like, that was, that, was, that was crazy. And so what they're waiting to see is that they could get Jesus. If we could just get Jesus in the center of a, of a largely densulated, populated area. So that a lot of people could see him do something or say something that was expressly against the Old Testament law. We could say, gotcha. He would lose his credibility. And they're hoping that they would, he would lose his following. So there's a lot of evil intent, isn't there? And they're just using this woman in order to propel their agenda. And I think at this point, I, I want us to think about the emotion at this point. Because uh, I think Jesus at this point, he's trying to control his anger and frustration. Because the context of chapter 8, it actually begins a series of narratives where Jesus shows deep compassion for people. But what the religious leaders keep doing every time is that each moment of his compassion they keep on saying, you did something wrong. You didn't do it right. You're doing things against God. In chapter 8, again, here he's with this uh, uh, adulterous woman. In chapter 9, he heals a blind man. And the seriously religious, they are angry 
because he healed them. They kicked the man out of the synagogue. In chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It says Jesus, this is where, you know, Jesus wept because he was so compassionate, so loving. And this act of compassion is why the Pharisees decided, actually, the first time it's mentioned um, in the book of John, of how they wanted to kill him. There's something broken in the human soul that delights in seeing others fail. There's something really broken and, and, and sinful in the human soul that delights in shaming others so that we don't have to face the shame that's in our own souls. And this woman is just an object lesson for their own false sense of righteousness. By the way, by the way, by the way, the Old Testament law they're referring to is actually Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And the, the complete law says this, if a man, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. Now, adultery during this time was a capital offense, okay? And don't, don't be judgy, all right? This is, this is back in ancient cultures, all right? And if, if you've ever been betrayed, just say, you probably like, this makes sense, right? And so, this particular law, it's explicit, okay, that it takes two to commit adultery. But this woman was so creative that she committed adultery all by herself. Because that's all they brought was just the woman. And they paraded her around. Now look, look, look. This woman, okay, we know she was caught in the act of adultery. But in the most shameful moment of her life, the way that she was publicly paraded around exposes her accusers' hatred, their misogyny, their cruelty. And in a way, her accusers became more inhumane than the adulterous woman. And I think because Jesus... Because we know that he came to forgive sins. They're in this place where forgiveness of sins was supposed to, to be won and, and bought. I think he's angry. I think he needs to count to ten. And so it says Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Like, I need a timeout. So he stoops down, starts writing on the ground. Verse 7. But they persisted in asking him. They were like, Jesus, what are you doing? You know, he's just, he's just kind of it feels like he's ignoring them. And they just persisted. They just said, hey, look at this woman. We caught her in the very act of adultery. She's she probably, probably was still naked, right? And so over and over, they're just crushing this woman. Jesus, don't you understand? This, this woman, this is what she did. Over and over, they're persistent with her. Have you ever had people in your life who persistently define you by your worst moment? Usually they're called siblings. Sometimes they're called parents. I think it's a fear that we all have. I, I know it's in, in, it's in me too. We, you can all think about the worst moment of our life, like the most shameful moment of our life, our greatest regret. And we would say things like in our head, like I can never, ever tell anyone. 
I can never let anyone know. Because if they knew, even though it's something that happened like when I was a kid or, or five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you would say, I can never let anyone know because what I did in the past will define me in my present. And people will never let me live down. They will not forgive me. They will not see the change in my life. They will never let me live it down. My worst moment will always cast a harsh shadow over my present, no matter how much I've changed, if people knew what I did. But the worst thing, you know, than being trapped, like in other people's judgment and shame, is being trapped in your own. And I wonder, as the, as the crowd is persistent in telling Jesus who this woman was, how worthless that she was, I wonder if the woman was also thinking, I deserve this. I deserve this. I got myself into this mess. They're right about me. And so any dignity and any little bit of humanity left in her soul she strips away herself. She's become worthless in her own eyes because of sin. And what I love about this moment, what I love about Jesus, is that we then see a Jesus that we don't normally see. Because Jesus says he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. Now, again, it's all the details, right? He straightened up. They didn't have to say that. They could just say Jesus stood or Jesus got up. or They didn't have to make that. They could just say Jesus said something. But he stooped down, and, and it's this moment where Jesus is just filled with, I think, some anger. I think some, some, some frustration. He, he, he loves this woman. He sees how she is being accused and condemned, and he's, now he straightens up. See, this is the moment where all the religious leaders kind of notice, you know, he's taller than I imagined, you know, at this moment. You have to, again, you have to pay attention to these details. And he straightened up because he came to the defense of the defenseless. And normally we think of Jesus as meek, gentle, and passive. But at this moment, he is full of strength. And he will not allow this woman to be abused. And then he says these words, famous words, right? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stoops down onto the ground. That's an amazing statement, right? To stand up and just... Just imagine that moment, filled with that strength that he's going to defend this woman. He says, he who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Drop the mic, boom, and he goes back down. Let's, them, let's those words reverberate, 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 right? Now, I also think that question is a very dangerous question to ask. Do you know people who are really self-righteous? Have you ever experienced people really self-righteous? Because you know, I've been around people where if, if I would have said, hey, you know, let's, let's calm things down. 
let's, let's not be too judgy because, hey, whoever, you know what Jesus said, right? Whoever, ca- whoever is without sin, you know, let them cast the first stone. Whoosh! I mean, I, I, I know people who do that. Like, they would be, yeah, I, I'm without sin. You know, okay, I'll cast the first stone, you know? They just have no self-awareness, right? A little, little more reflection is necessary, right? And I, I, I got to let you know one thing about me too, okay, is that I would consider myself a recovering stone thrower. I would consider myself a recovering stone thrower. Because especially early in my Christian life, I was just really, really, really good at pinpointing sins of others. I mean, I was just really, really good at calling people out. I was really, really good at, at, at shaming others, you know, because my Asian culture just really helped me, propel me. I was just excellent in that, you know. I could just do it so easily. I was just really, really good at throwing stones. And, and all the while, while I'm doing that, I'm just blind to my own hatred and utter lack of grace. You know who the most dangerous person you could give this to in a church at work, your small group, the most dangerous person you give this is to the person who lacks self-awareness. Is the person who lacks empathy, the l- person who doesn't have that kind of introspection to say, oh yeah, I'm pretty messed up too. And partly what blinds us, the reason that any of us can fall into this trap of con- condemning others and saying, oh, we're fine, right, is the power of this stone because with this stone you can intimidate with this stone you can threaten with this stone you can pastors have used this stone to like coerce people into obedience and with this stone you can silence opposition the reason why people cast stones not just in church but outside as well is because they cannot Feel the weight and the worth and the power that's in their own soul. That's why they cast stones. By the way, don't miss the irony in the story, right? Who is the only one without sin in this picture? Let's all say it together. You'll be right. One, two, three. Jesus. Okay, good, right? Got it right. The only one who had any right to pick up a stone, to throw a stone, he never, he never even picked one up. This is what I love about our Savior, what I love about Jesus, is that Jesus will never let you be defined by your worst moment. Jesus will never let you be defined by your worst flaw. What you are so scared of other people knowing, what you are so scared of other people seeing or being vulnerable or revealing, the thing that you feel like would define you if people knew. Jesus will never let you define by your worst moment. He does not constantly look down on you to remind you of your sin and to kind of trap you in your worst memory. Jesus stands up to defend your dignity, your humanity, and your future defined by your best moments. 
defined by your most loving moments, by, defined by your most sacrificial moments, where you feel, the, you feel and you know who you are. You feel the full weight of, of your soul, of your spirit, and the beauty because God is present. This is our loving God. By the way, by the way, too, remember this. This is important. Surround yourself with people who define you by the hope of your future, not by the sin of your past. This is really important. Because those voices will hold you back. Those voices will hold you back. You need to surround yourself with people who define you by the hope of your future, not by the sin of your past. I have a friend who's just kind of going through something right now, and they're, they're trying to move forward in their life. They're about in, in, in their mid-30s, and they, they sense God's call in a particular direction. I've been just giving them some helpful, hopefully, advice just here and there. But they're being held back by people that are close to them. And the way to move forward is not just to, to blast your way forward and just say, forget about those relationships, and I don't, I don't care about them, and I hate them, and they don't like me. Whatever. No. The way to move forward is just to move forward, but in great love and humility. Because if you move forward just trying to break everything because all the ways that other people have broken you, you just become the same as everyone else. You reflect the same sin that they are reflecting on to you. Verse 9, and when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court, and then here's Jesus again, straightening up. Jesus didn't have to do any violence to get people to leave. He He didn't have to do any of that. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I did not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Wow. From now on, go, sin no more. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as far as what was Jesus writing in the sand. What was it that made them turn? Because people who are ready to throw stones, they're ready to throw stones. The men who were gathered said from the oldest to the youngest, they were professional throne stowers. They've done this before. It was easy for them to do. Something that he wrote, something that he did significantly transformed their hearts so they would walk away in deep humility, perhaps in some type of conviction. Some uh, commentators say he was just doodling in the ground. Jesus was a doodler. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, just trying to bide time. Some people, commentators say he wrote the Ten Commandments. Some say he wrote the names of, of each stone holder who was surrounding uh, the woman. Uh, that there was like a miracle. They were amazed. I don't know. But the best one that I've heard, at least, you know, is um, <clears throat> because whatever he wrote had to have a significant, cause a significant change of heart. And, and so one theologian said this, which... I don't know. Again, it's all speculation, but it's good. He says, maybe Jesus wrote down the names of all the women and prostitutes that these so-called religious people had been with, from the oldest to the youngest. That'd make you lay down your stone. And I love the conversation Jesus has with this woman. He says, where are your accusers now? I mean, she's at the worst moment, publicly shamed. Where are your accusers now? Where's your condemnation now? 
They're all gone. They're all gone, she says. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. And that's what some of you need to hear today when it comes to your sin. And we're going to talk about sin a lot in these next, you know, seven, eight weeks. And this isn't going to be a thing where it's just a big, nice guilt fest. I pray these messages will come with also an end with that freedom. Where Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Have you ever been in a conversation with a group of people and, and you're trying to work something out, a conflict, and all of a sudden you have some people who start attacking you, right? You know where you stand with those people who start attacking you. But in that same conversation, you have a group of people and, and there's, there's a conflict and then there's a couple people who defend you, who stand up for you, who defend you. You know where you stand with those people. When Jesus stands for this woman, you know where he stands for this woman. When God of the universe dies on the cross for your sin, sheds his blood so that all that is sticking to us might be washed off, you know where the God of the universe stands with you. Amen? Amen? He stands for you. Now, Jesus, when he says go, right, goes from now on, sin no more. Is it, like, is it just like getting scot-free, off scot-free? Look, Jesus doesn't mean to go and live like a sin-free life as if you could just live a sinless life. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you're free, live like you're free. When you're now defined as you were the sinner before, or you were in sin before, or you were defined by your shame, but now you're defined by freedom and forgiveness, then go live in that freedom and forgiveness. Don't live back in shame, but live in freedom. Live like you're free. Live like your life is no longer defined by sin, because if you believe your life isn't defined by sin, you'll begin living that way. You'll begin seeing the world in completely different colors, new colors, not just black and white of morality. Because when your life is defined by freedom, it begins to birth the kind of life that is free. That is free. So I need to close up two things, okay? Number one is I may not be the only recovering stone thrower, okay? So number one is will you lay down your stone? Because there are stone, all of us, there are probably some stone throwers here, really good. From the oldest to the youngest, will you lay down your stone? Now, the reason I even have this particular stone, okay, is because way, way back about 10 years ago, I was doing a prayer retreat myself down in Palisades in Federal Way. Not the Palisades, not the nice restaurant, okay. That's a different kind of retreat. Uh, the other one I did was in Palisades, Federal Way. It's a Catholic retreat site. And I went down to uh, the beach area, and I just started throwing stones, okay. And, um, and then when I picked this one up, for some reason, I just stopped. And just looked at it, and I just felt the weight of it. Like the weight, like the way it felt, you know. And when I looked at it, I just sensed God speak to me. And he said, Roy, you know, in your life, this stone, I want you to throw it far. Throw it far, okay? Not throw it at people, okay? All right, but just throw it far. And the, the idea was that right, in your ministry, and what you want to do in, in serving the church, right, is serve people. Give it all you've got. Give it all your might, right? Go hard at it. And don't be a stone thrower to throw it at people, right? Just use all your effort, all your, um, all your strength, all your faith, so that you can 
create within the church, to create a milestone church, to create milestones, to create, to create events for people of, of, of deep faith in their life. So that you can be a person who creates stepping stones of faith for others to follow. That all of their lives, the people in the church, might be, their life and faith might be built on the cornerstone, who is Jesus, the giver of life. Amen? That's why I have this stone. It reminds me. Don't throw it at people, right? We create milestones. We create stepping stones. We help people build their life on the cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Okay, number two is what is your sin? What is your sin? There, there are some sins that kind of visit for a while, and there's some sins that just stick like a permanent marker. I can't seem to shake it. What is your sin? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Uh, I mean, these next couple of weeks, looking at what the ancient theologians defined as these seven deadly sins, these core sins that birth other sins. And one thing you got to notice, right, is that when you talk about these seven deadly sins, you know, anger and, and malice and lust or sloth or indulgence or, or envy or, or greed or pride, none of them are, it's not a black and white thing. These are all things that come in the human heart. It's not just black and white. It's not just a moral thing. And the good news is that, is that some of you feel trapped in your worst moments. And my prayer is that through this series is that there's going to be freedom. There's going to be pockets and persons and people, just freedom, freedom, freedom popping all over this place so that we might live in the life that calls us to. And I know it can be difficult because sometimes some of you, you see your sin, you're like, I can never see myself walking away from that. I, I just see myself as not only trapped, but sin's kind of fun. Kind of like it. It's very similar to, there's, there's a great theologian named St. Augustine. Probably heard him before. Um, third century, I think he was, uh, a monk. And by all accounts, when you read his biography, he was a sex addict. He just couldn't control himself. And his famous prayer was this. Lord, heal me. But not yet. That's funny. You can laugh. <laughs> I mean, he knows what the right thing is to do. He knows he needs to be healed. He doesn't want to be stuck in this sin, but not exactly yet. Because I like what I'm doing. And this is what I've known. Is that when you're stuck in this certain kind of sin, when you feel this way, it's because... Your love for your sin has not yet outpaced your understanding of God's love for you. That's what it is. When you feel stuck, it's because your love for your sin, your enjoyment of sin, has not yet outpaced your understanding of God's love for you. Not about your love for God. Your love for God only comes when you understand God's love for you. When you're trapped, it's because your love for your sin has not outpaced your understanding of God's love for you. 
And that's what I'm praying and hoping for, too, is that we have moments where we just sense and know the Savior of God's love, uh, uh, the love uh, of our Savior, who stands and defends us when all voices in our heads and outside of us accuse us and tear us down of our sin. Jesus is the one that stands up to defend and says, I do not condemn you either. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day today. Oops. Amen. Drop the stone. That's what we all are going to do uh, these next coming weeks. Father, thank you so much, Father, for uh, your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. God, we know that on the cross, it's only because of the cross when you died, Father. You died for the punishment of, that we all deserved for all of our sins. And it's by your precious, precious blood that we are washed white as snow. All the things that seek to, to the, the black marks, the purple marks that, that stick to us. All the ways that we feel trapped and all the ways that we feel we, we trap ourselves. Father, you are the one that brings life and that brings freedom. And so I pray for everyone here this week as um, we've thought about the stone that we need to drop. And we've thought about owning up to the sin that we desperately need to confess. God, I'm praying, Father, for all of us that there will just be amazing breakthroughs in, through this series in our lives. Talk about it in our CGs. Confront it in prayer. Get help. God, that there would be increasing, increasing freedom in this church, in your body that you love. Thank you, Father. Your words transform us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church.